0: On Shredder Bro. There's Shredder Bro. everywhere. I think Shredder
1: Bro's lost the wheel. Star trail. The Norwalk Havoc Robot League was started by my guest today, Austin McCord. But he's better known as the donor behind a $50 million grant to Rochester Institute of Technology. Construction has begun on the Maker Library and Innovative Learning Complex at RIT, which will house a maker space open to all students. Welcome to Make Cast. I'm Dale Doherty. Austin McCord has a surprising success story, and his success might have happened while he was busy not doing his homework. In this conversation with Austin, I learned how he became a success in business by turning down an offer most of us would have taken. He went on to build the first unicorn company in Connecticut, Datto. His current company, Care, is building smart toilet seats. Which is a much better idea than it sounds at first. Three years ago, he also started the Robot League in Connecticut, Norwalk Havoc Robot League, that holds about seven events a year for robots in three 12 and 30 pound classes. Austin McCord has a remarkable maker story, and he's doing things that give others the access and opportunity, like he had,
0: to build things. And see what happens.
1: So, actually, let's start. Just give us some background: who
0: you are and where you grew up. Yeah, you... I, I grew up in uh, Newtown, Connecticut. I went to public school there and was always fascinated with technology and making things and playing around with electronics. But I was not a particularly great student in the sense that I just never did any homework and had like an arrogance to it of just like, I'm just not going to do this, not because it's hard. It's just I just don't care to do it. it seem uh, pointless. Yeah, sure. Seem pointless. Didn't seem like a good use of my time and and at the time and in high school like i i could still get really good grades on all the tests and just not turn in any homework and then that basically turns you into an automatic b student which uh, when i went to go apply to colleges like i had always hoped to go to like the MITs of the world and that was not in the cards with my grades i did get into rit and uh, i originally started there as an electrical and it was interesting cuz i had self taught myself a whole lot of things just tinkering around and building all kinds of crazy stuff. And because of that, I was able to take a digital systems class my freshman year, which normally you take later in the progression, and went home and sort of learned all this stuff. It was really cool and went home one weekend and built a calculator out of just like the Boolean logic and all the NAND gates and things like that. And was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. And I went and I showed it to the professor and was just like neat to be able to apply like what I was learning. And he was like, that'll make a great senior project someday. And I was like the most demotivating thing anybody had ever told me because I was a freshman. And if the senior project of electrical engineering is to make a calculator, what the hell am I doing? Um, And yeah, so You'd, you'd already passed that hurdle. Yeah. Like, like that was, that was a weekend project. It was interesting and I don't need to keep doing this. So I sort of started poking around the university looking for a different major. And I managed to find bioinformatics. And the thing that sold me is that the the professor there that ran it was like, look, everything you learn in your first two years won't matter because it'll be out of date by the time you graduate. And for me, that was exciting because it meant like the field is changing. There are new things to discover and to learn. and, And I could potentially discover and learn and add to this field. Whereas like electrical engineering, unless you're doing something really big or really small, like It's pretty much a known science. Uh, That's that's um, an
1: interesting perspective. But it's actually increasingly true of lots of fields that are available to you. The vast majority of fields
0: that people enter, like like fluid dynamics, like we we pretty much, we know that one. Like a lot of the material science, a lot of these other ones, yeah, they're known and we're teaching them to you. But if you want to like make something that's never been made before – you got to find a different field. And pretty much anything with biology attached to it, if we have an idea, still got a lot to figure out. And and I actually really enjoyed my classes in bioinformatics, but when I got to the end of my university tenure, I had a 2.2 GPA, which I was like, oh my God, no one is going to hire me. And so I thought, okay, I, I guess um, like what I'll do is I'll start a company and I'll probably fail at it, but then I won't have to list my GPA like on my resume anymore and I can just be like, yeah, I like applied myself and I went all in, in this direction and employers will look at that favorably. And so I had this idea around a NAS device. So just network attached storage device, that replicated data offsite. And I built one and soldered it together. And what time um, period, is it just so I know what the technology this is? Uh, this like? would be 2007.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. All right. I
0: started this company in the summer of 07, called it DATO, which was like data and Ditto put together. And yeah, I I got really lucky in the sense that like the business did not fail. And the original business idea was not a great one. I tried to raise money. Everybody was like, no, this is not like, what are you doing? You're making hardware in a basement with a hot glue gun and a soldering iron. This is not a real business. And the backup thing, like it's been done before. As we started going out to customers, learned about the edges of where this could go. And at the time when everybody had like a server at every small business, when those servers went down, like those whole businesses were paralyzed and we did this crazy thing where we figured out how to reverse engineer how Windows boots up and we could convert a physical Windows machine into a virtual Windows machine instantly. And so our product became much closer to like high availability for small business. And at that point, it really took off. And I ran that and it it grew and I hired like friends of mine from high school and sort of this whole crazy band of misfits. And all that happened until... 2013
1: but when you continue, you
0: continue selling a device yeah, right. oh, yeah. so make physical stuff we we just kept getting bigger and better at it and the company is a manufacturing plant in Monroe Connecticut now and it's just we've just always done it but yeah so in 2013 uh, a crazy thing happened that the another big cybersecurity company out there offered to buy our business and that was like weird just in that I thought I was working on a partnership with them and then they call and they're like yeah we don't actually want to partner with you we, we would like to buy your company. And I was like, oh, okay. And they're like, I, and I was like, how much? And they're like a hundred million dollars. And I was just like, holy shit. Like I'd never even contemplated like money at that scale. And at the time I was a hundred percent shareholder because I didn't know how to give everybody stock options. So they didn't get stock options. And you didn't have investors, huh? I didn't have any investors. No. So Yeah, I I thought about it and I got a lawyer and the lawyer is like, Austin, you could regret this decision for the rest of your life from the beach of your own private island. Sell your goddamn company. And I called him back and I said, no, I, I was having too much fun and I turned them down. That was a really interesting moment cuz a lot of people are like oh i love what i do but rarely is that tested with a nine digit number but they didn't see the value in the team that i had hired or in being in connecticut which they're right in both of those cases but like they they just weren't particularly interested in that and they just wanted the technology and i was having too much fun so i said no and then the next thing i realized was like now i have to make sure that this is not a decision that i regret for the rest of my life. And I got a lot more open to treating the business like a hundred million dollar asset and went and looked for partners to help me grow it and ended up taking some investment from a venture capital firm out of Boston called General Catalyst. Uh, and I brought some really smart people on the board and they helped me really professionalize the team that was running the company and just grew it like crazy from there. Uh, so in late 2017, there was like conversations whether or not we would go public or not. And I didn't wanna run a public company as a majority shareholder, cause I felt like I could never get any liquidity. So I opted to sell the business to private equity and I sold it to Vista for around $1.5 billion. So that makes the hundred million like really tiny in comparison. And uh, that's where the money comes from to be able to gift RIT. And they had asked for a long time, like early on, hey, if your business ever really works out, you should give some money back to RIT and it would be a nice thing to do. And, and they were like, how about like 10 percent? And I was like, how about 10 percent? But let's just in case in the off chance is really successful. Let's cap it at 50 million. And so we, that, that cap definitely came into play. And uh, yeah, so I I basically like a a week or two after I got the wire, I, I gave RIT the money and they had wanted me to talk about it all these years before. And I was like, no, it's you can't talk about it. I haven't given you any cash. But then I like finally did come through and give them the cash. And then when we talked about what to do with it, one of the things that I I did want to see RIT do more of is join sort of the the art side and the engineering side and get them to work together. And RIT is a unique institution in that they have a top rated photography program and a top rated computer science program. And what can you do to sort of help meld those two pieces? And during my time at RIT, when I was busy not doing homework, I, I was actually part of a publishing club and I wrote for the paper and I did all these other things that were like not engineering related. And I I really loved that. And I also feel young people now don't get enough access to stuff to learn that like they can make the things around them in the world. And people feel like everything that they see around them comes from a factory in China. And it's just it's not true at all. And, and they also think that robots make everything and like robots make a few things, but the vast majority of stuff is made by people. And it's every screw that you ever see in a product. There's like a 99% chance that screw was installed by a person. And if, if you ask anybody, they're just shocked that was the case that like a human put that screw in there and that, you know, these things are more accessible and like people make things and yeah, robots are getting better at making things, but there's so many people involved In the process of making a thing and it's also not impossible for you to make it too, whatever it is so to bring that together and that's where kind of the makerspace stuff comes in when did you start talking about how rit would spend that money after i gave it to them which was Um,
1: like a year ago or
0: gave them the money no it would have been in uh, late 2017 okay yeah but because the building now is halfway out of the ground but it takes like years to design it and do this stuff and it's a whole cycle. So yeah, that's when I had that conversation. It went in a bunch of different directions. So a bunch of the money went towards building a huge new cybersecurity wing. And there's a bunch of endowed professorships associated with that stuff. And I wanted to give the university a lot of flexibility and reign in how they decide to spend it. Because I, I feel like donors number one way to mess stuff up is to get super involved. And so let the people on the ground do their job. And I think the only mandate that I gave them was that I just didn't need anything named after me. And so we, we found other people to name stuff after. And I named a you know, few professorships after the women from Hidden Figures, because those are much better role models than I am. And then some of the other stuff is named after like the the teachers that I actually really enjoyed growing up. And that's that was so meaningful to them. And I don't know, we don't need a whole bunch of Austin McCord professorships uh, from <laughs> a kid in homework. That's so. really nicely against the yeah. grain. Huh? Yeah.
1: I appreciate that. Yeah. But
0: just to close the loop yeah. on like My life now, I left Datto in 2018, which was a whole other interesting set of things because I actually thought I was going to stay on and run it forever with the PE firm and then realized that I didn't want the only thing I've ever done in my life to be Datto. And so decided to leave. I did a year working in venture capital, which was really interesting, but also realized that I like to build stuff, not play Groundhog Day again and again, where you just meet companies and start over. And so then this past year, I've been working on Kasana, which is another RIT student's idea originally, which is around a a toilet seat that can get your blood pressure and SpO2 and all these vitals without, it just looks an acts and works like a regular toilet seat. And it's actually has an ability to be hugely impactful. And this guy's an incredible scientist, but doesn't have an engineer or business bone in him. And so it's like Nick together, we can do something incredible and bring this to market. And that's what I've been doing for the last six to nine months. Is it in the market yet
1: or still? Uh, No,
0: it's, well, because We want people to be able to like actually have their medication adjusted by it and stuff. So we have to go through all the FDA approval. So we are in clinical trial pending FDA approval. Fascinating. Let's talk about the the makerspace you're building. Tell me about that. I think that it's big space that's student focused. And when I was at RIT, they have all these incredible labs with all this incredible equipment behind a locked door. Yeah. And that sucks. And so the idea is like... All right, let's put some money aside to make even more incredible labs with even more incredible equipment and let's leave the door open and see what happens and I think that my my hope is it'll be deeply empowering for people to work on projects, to interact together, to see the fusion of both the, the software side, the hardware side, the design components, the artistic components necessary to make all of that work and make new things that in general should make the world better. I'm sure a lot of it will just make people giggle or laugh, but do that and okay. to provide the room and the space for students to make that happen. And I think that it can be a unique asset for RIT that builds upon the left brain, right brain that the university has. Yeah. and And I want to make sure that the university continues to like feel the love for the art side just as much as it does for the engineering side.
1: It does allow students to come from those different programs together to work or to to learn things that are outside of their discipline. Exactly. And
0: there's just so much that we can learn from each other and and to see the other side and to be able to interact with that stuff is so cool. When will it be I, I think it should be finished hopefully by the end of 2022. I don't know the exact date. I, I hope to check yeah. in with you again when that happens. But, yeah, it's um, a lot of glass and concrete right now. Yeah. That's being put uh, in. Is it a single story building, multiple stories? No, no, it's it's a multi-story. It's a huge building. And on the university campus, it basically connects the student alumni union and the library. And it's like this giant four-story nice. building that glues those two together. That's great. Now.
1: I don't know you well, but just through this conversation, but isn't it interesting that someone that maybe didn't like school as much as like the best student in school ends up
0: being a benefactor of schools? Yeah. Is it interesting? Yeah, of course it's interesting or, or different. I, I think the thing is that it's not that I dislike learning. I think that there's a little bit of it that started when I was young. There was an arrogance of, I don't need this homework, so I won't do it. But there's a reason that I also had crappy grades at RIT, which is because i lacked the study skills to actually achieve when it came time to do it. And eventually you do take really hard classes like organic chemistry and like they're virtually impossible without doing the homework. Um, and I remember because organic chemistry was actually the first ever class that I ever signed up to do online. And it's like, oh, this will be easy. I don't even have to go. And the first quiz came around and I, I did worse than chance like on the test. And so I was like, oh no, I need to drop this and at least take it in person.
1: That's something. But partly though, that sort of leads to your taking certain chances when you graduate and what you want to do. You were definite about that you had your idea, even though investors and other people didn't think it was a good idea. You believed in it and you did it. Yeah. Sometimes when we Sometimes, I guess one of the default views of school is that you're always looking for approval. You're always in class yeah. trying to get that good grade. And then you got in the world and you only do things that other people approve. And and to some degree, I would say your anti-homework arrogance, if you call it that, it sets you up to sets you up for failure, if you like. But
0: I, I, it, I think it even, sets you up to learn from that failure anyway. Certainly, you, you become more comfortable with the consequences of failure. Yeah. And like you you've failed before. And so it's less scary in that sense. And that there are people who graduate and have never failed a class and have always done well when they receive their first bad remarks or performance review or something and it says they're not doing the right things, they freak out. Whereas I got to grow up perpetually disappointing my parents when it came to academic stuff. And so I I knew it was coming and (laughs) how to deal with it. That's just Um,
1: interesting dealing with
0: disapproval.
1: Is, is actually an important skill. It, it is a skill.
0: It's a painful one to yeah. learn, but, uh, but it, it makes you less afraid of future disapproval because it's like, well, I got through this. Yeah. yeah,
1: Yeah, that's great. Tell me about the Robot League. Did you start? Uh, so it- I did
0: start the league, and there, like, there've been a lot of hobbyist robot events out there, and I've, I've actually participated on teams that have competed on the BattleBots TV show. But like, I don't have time right. to spend three weeks in yeah. Southern California filming a TV show, so I, I have not been on the TV show. I I went to these other robot events, and I was like, these things take too long, and they're not well run, and I don't have time to wait this whole thing. So like, someone could run this so much better, and that's where the Norwalk Havoc thing was born. And then the idea is that. I could produce a stream that would look on par with like broadcast television, like very high quality and eventually get like YouTube and online ad revenue to pay for the cost of the event. And so that's this grand experiment. And we're in our third year now. And in the past year, I kind of went all in crazy on it. And so I bought a building that i 've got sixty seven thousand square feet dedicated for this event now and i 've got all sorts of stands and i 've got an incredible set of broadcast gear that would rival anything that you see on t v and put the whole thing together. And so we're just, if you build it, they will come, has been the mentality. And each time we've gotten progressively better and better. But I think that it's really fun as just like a project to see what you can put together, what you can organize. Two, the combat robots is like the ultimate test of engineering skill and like applied engineering And so you talk about design or like dealing with failure, like you have to design for failure and like these robots come at each other and then they get beat up and then you got to repair and fix and be ready to fight again in 20 minutes. And it's not just, can your robot do well once, but it's to win the event, you got to fight 10 times and getting that whole process together is neat. And just the types of people that that brings out as far as like creative, technically minded folks is really cool. And it's again, encourages a lot of young people That's hey, these are things you can build. And the nice part about working at like the three pound, 12 pound and 30 pound classes, these are things you can make in your garage. And you can start and you can build a relatively competitive robot for a couple hundred dollars in the three pound range. And as you go up, they get more expensive, but that's a lot easier than like the robots that are in the TV show are easily $20,000 plus, which sit outside the reach of most people. So I, I like the accessibility of it. And really just the whole thing is just a lot of fun to put on the show uh, a couple times a year. Yeah. So the next Probably one's in May. Year, we put yeah. Seven yeah. times a year. Yeah. The next one's in May. The last one was last weekend. This past Saturday, we had 160 robot fights that all happened in that 10 hour period, which is pretty amazing.
1: I agree with you. That I've always thought that actually the rights to like robot games and it, it Maker Faire we said robo games and some others yep. uh, that were happening but that if someone could figure out how to do that let there would be an audience online for for just watching them so have you, are you fi- starting to find that the
0: audience has been growing exponentially between the different events so like that makes us feel really good and i think that as we get better at some of the storytelling around the competitors that'll like in deepen that connection and and make it even more compelling but certainly from like a Technical level, like we have the gear and the equipment and the process and the wherewithal and know with all to do it, and so now it's
1: yeah, it's like
0: smoothing out yeah, the like, to, like the storytelling part of it. But I I think there's definitely a huge audience, and it's one of those things too that I could see it as almost. I don't want to say a competitor to first, but a supplement to like the first type stuff that it, it's actually easier than competing in first. And what I really like about it is that our rules are really loose. There's, there's a couple of strict walls around how much you weigh, but then how you do it is all up to you. And I so think and... creativity as far as what you're using for motors and what you're how you're going to move around or how you're going to do this and what parts of where you're going to come right. from. Is really cool. Whereas first is like here, use these controls.
1: One of the things I always noticed a little bit from robot leagues was there was three or four strategies, and they were repeated in mm-hmm. lots of them. There's the offensive models and the defensive models, yeah, and then various types in that. Is it something where you continue to see like new ideas or new models coming out? Are they, how a lot, sometimes things happen. So you look at like the, who the successful ones are and everybody replicates that. And then that kind of runs its course and then something else comes along and and takes over. There's
0: four or five different sort of staple type of bots that tend to be very similar. But then like we had in November, a robot showed up that had never competed before that used basically gyroscopic procession to move around the arena and just won the whole thing. Like first time showed up, won everything. And so that kind of stuff is really cool to see that, that there's an opportunity to change, change the bar as far as what's acceptable, what can be done and what wins. And uh, yeah, we continue to see that innovation and I keep pushing for it wherever we can. And we sort of try to set up the rules to encourage it as much as possible. That's great. And like this past event, there there had been a known thing that the rule was like, if you are going to go after a twelve pound robot, like four three pound robots would never ever do well, or like three three pound robots trying to attack a twelve pound, just the kinetic energy advantage the twelve would have, you'd just lose every time. And so no one ever tried. And somebody this event actually tried and showed up with a bunch of small robots to go after a twelve pound. They won the twelve pound league. And so just destroyed every 12-pounder they came after. That now has changed the thinking about what a 12-pound, what could happen, and the idea that even though you're at such a weight disadvantage, the thousand angry ducks is way better than one horse type thing. Yeah, yeah, that's great.
1: That gets also into storytelling of understanding the differences between the different models fighting and the teams and, and all that so yeah i think that's really fascinating we'd love to it, it's had its ups and downs for combat robots, and to some degree the show helps in in other ways it doesn't i think it sometimes just becomes a spectator thing but when i it's almost just as there's different styles in auto racing that there's room for different styles of combat leagues yeah You
0: know that and and so that's interesting i think the big thing is like when when you watch the show Everybody always is like, man, I'd build a robot that would do this and I would win. And the barrier to make a 250 pound robot is really high. But the idea that you watch the show, okay, cool. Build a three pound one and win. And the idea that you can show up out of nowhere with a new idea and win, there's a lot of proof that that exists. That's so cool. And so every time people ask, or they come up like, oh, I got a crazy idea, build it. Like, and if you need help, I'll help you like, but you should build it and see what happens. MakeCast
1: is brought to you by the members of Make Community, who support makers in their community and around the world. To learn more about membership, visit Make.co.